This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. Uh, dear Father, as we come before you this morning, we thank you that you've given us your word in the book of Isaiah. And we pray that we may take these serious words seriously in our hearts and really apply them, not just to our minds, not just to our hearts, but also to our will, so that we may respond rightly to your word. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now I went to Australia to study when I was very young. And uh, I think I was about uh, 13 years old. And it was a huge culture shock for me. Because uh, in the first week of school, I realized that uh, my classmates uh, behave quite differently to what I was used to when I was in Singapore. So I remember my uh, first week of school, my, my classmates used to make these things called spitballs. Right? So they'll get little pieces of paper, and they'll mix it with spit, and they'll make these little balls, and then they'll throw it at the blackboard when the teacher wasn't looking. And then there are other occasions too where, uh, you know, my classmates would make rude or vulgar nicknames of their teachers. Uh, even talk back to their teachers. And I was really shocked because uh, when I was at school, that never happened, you know. If you ever did that uh, in those days anyway, you'd stand in the dustbin or stand on the table or, you know, go to the principal's office. So I was, I was really shocked at the level of disrespect to the teacher. But that was in my time, right? That was in the 80s. But recently, a pastor friend of mine uh, was telling me how his daughter was now a teacher in one of the top private schools in Sydney. But uh, she was not allowed to go to this particular class unaccompanied because the students there were making a vulgar and, uh, and sexual comments to her. And these were 12 to 14 year old kids, right? So I was really, su- really surprised and really shocked to myself. And I think that if you look around the world, this sort of lack of respect for authority is more and more widespread. Uh, if you look at the surveys, if you look at reports, all over the world, whether you're a doctor, whether you're a teacher, whether you're some other respected profession, uh, people respect you less than they did a generation ago. And I think that as we come to God's Word, I think the question that uh, poses in my mind is, is that sort of attitude of disrespect and a lack of uh, recognition of authority flow over to the way that we view God. Because, you know, if you look in the world today, a lot of authority figures, instead of being respected, they're sort of met with cynicism, mockery, and jeering. And I wonder whether we may, we may feel the same way against God in the way that we relate to Him. Well, today as we look at Isaiah chapter 6, uh, we've been looking at Isaiah chapter 1 to 5, and that forms a very important background to what we're studying today in Isaiah chapter 6. So in Isaiah chapter 1 to 5, we see that God's people in Israel, instead of respecting God and honoring God, they had been marked by two things, sinfulness and arrogance against God. So last week, when we studied Isaiah chapter 5, we saw that they were sinful because they were greedy and they were oppressing and they were exploiting the poor and the vulnerable to get great wealth for themselves. They had a great love for pleasure. They were champions at drinking and they had forgotten the love of God. And they had overturned the moral compass 
that God had given them. So last week, we read, it says here, Woe to those who call evil good, and good evil, who put darkness for light, and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet, and sweet for bitter. So here were people who were rebellious and sinful against God. But they were also arrogant against God. They, they were not honoring God. They did not treat God with respect. So in verse 18-19, to it says, Woe to those who draw sin along with cords of deceit, and wickedness as with cart ropes, to those who say, Let God hurry, let Him hasten His work, so we may see, let it approach, let the plan of the Holy, work, Holy One of Israel come, so we may know it. Now I'm not going to be like, why last week, you know, the, bring it on, right? Okay, but, but that was the attitude of God's people, right? They were challenging God. And it's within that context that we now come to Isaiah chapter 6. Because the question that verse 1 to 5 poses to us is, what is going to be the attitude of God's people? Will they turn back to God? Will they change their ways? Will they repent? And will they respond to Isaiah's ministry? So it begins in verse 1 in chapter 6, where it says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on the throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Oops, oh, there's a water bottle here. Okay. <clears throat> now, this places the ministry of Isaiah in a very specific time and place. So, if you look at this uh, table here, uh, King Uzziah ruled from 767 to 740. BC. Okay, so the time of his death would be 740 BC. So we know that Isaiah began his ministry or was commissioned by God in around 740 BC. Now King Uzziah had ruled for 27 years and he was a good king. Generally, he was a good administrator, he was fair, he, he was just. And now that he died, uh, there was a period of uncertainty. There was a period of uncertainty because, you know, whether the king dies, there's always the question, what's going to happen next? What's the next king going to be like? Is the transition going to be smooth? No, it's a bit like Singapore, right? Now we're moving from 3G to 4G. And in a sense, you know, will there be uncertainty in Singapore? I mean, that's a question in people's minds. So it's the same thing here. But then, during the context of Uzziah's death, there is a vision that Isaiah sees. And he sees... The Lord seated on a throne. Now, I want you to look at your Bibles very carefully. Now, if you see the word Lord in verse 1, it is L-O-R-D in small letters. right? You've got to look at your Bibles. Okay? If you don't look at your Bibles, you don't know what I'm talking about. You're completely lost. But if you look in verse 3, you see the Lord, L-O-R-D, in capital letters. Now, there's a difference, okay? Because... L-O-R-D, next slide. Okay, oh, it's up there. Okay, the Lord. The next slide. Okay, the next one. Uh, okay, okay, down one more. Ah, So the Lord, L-O-R-D in capital letters, is a name. It is Yahweh. It is the covenant God. But the Lord in small letters, L-O-R-D, is not the name of God. It is the title of God. He is the ruler, the king the sovereign. So actually what's happening here is 
the king Uzziah dies, and Isaiah sees the king, the true king of Israel, the true king of God's people, who is God, Yahweh. And he's sitting on the throne, and he's sitting high and exalted. Now, it is a visual, you know, you gotta, that's why when you read the Isaiah, you gotta use your imagination, right? It is a visual metaphor for all, being the, the highest and the greatest and the most powerful. So, you know, when you, when you win the gold medal at the Olympics, how high do you stand on the podium? You, you're the highest, right? I mean, you don't win the gold medal and you stand the lowest, right? You are like the top. When you go to the court, who sits at the highest place? The judge, right? I mean, the, 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 the accused doesn't sit up there. The judge sits up there. The accused sits down here. In the same way, God sits high and exalted. He is above all the other kings. He's above King Uzziah. He is the one who really rules God's people and the whole world. And here it says that God, his tra- the train of his robe filled the temple. Now usually you find the king in a castle or you find the king in his palace. But here you see Israel's king in the temple. And here we see that his tra- the train of his robe fills the whole temple. Now what is the train of a robe? So uh, usually we think of the train of the robe of the, of the bride, right? You know, when she's walking down the aisle, they have a very long train. But actually, kings also have these big, long robes, right? Now, we're not meant to think that, you know, wow, God's got the, this long, big robe, which is longer than any wedding gown, or that, you know, he's got this great fashion sense, right? You know, he's got this long robe, right? But I think, figuratively, it's trying to say that the presence of God, His glory and His majesty fills the whole temple. But it's not just the temple that God's glory fills. Because if you go on in verse uh, 3, it says, And the, the seraphs were calling to one another, Holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. So here we are given a sense in which God is high and exalted. His glory and His presence fills the temple and the whole earth, right? So here's a picture of power, presence, majesty, and glory. So you know, if you ever go on holiday, uh, you know, it's always good to visit the great palaces of the world. So, if you go to Beijing, right, you go to the Forbidden City in Tiananmen Square. If you ever go to London, you know, you go to Buckingham Palace. If you go to France, you go to the Palace of Versailles. And, and the thing about these palaces is that, you know, when you go there, you're kind of like struck with awe and uh, have your breath taken away of how impressive these palaces are, right? Because they're designed by the architects and the interior designers and the craftsmen to really impress you. And it's to show you that, you know, the king is really powerful. So the, the emperor of China, when you go in, you see him, wow, this is really powerful, right? Or you go to England or you go to France, Right. Although the king of France is, they don't have kings anymore, right? But, but you can see the whole plan is to impress you. But actually at the end of the day, the human emperor, 
they're just like you and I, right? They're just humans. They're just fallible. They get sick. They die. They make mistakes. They can be cruel. But God is not like that. He doesn't need the architecture to impress you. The picture here that we see of God is that He Himself is power. He Himself is presence. He Himself is majesty and glory personified. Now, if the first part of the description is of the power of God, then the second part is of the character of God. So in verse 2 it says, Above him were seraphim, each with six wings, with two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Now the seraphim are like heavenly creatures, and they are literally burning ones. They are like on fire. Okay, So they are literally on fire. But they are not there like you know, the secret service to protect the president. Right? You know, it's not as if God needs protection. But the seraphim are there to praise God, and as they praise God, they are meant to draw attention to God's character, to teach us theology, so to speak. And the character which they emphasize about God is that He is holy, holy, holy. So it's a bit like um, a, a superlative, right? You know, like good, better, best. So He's holy, He's holy, He's holy. He is supremely holy. He's utterly holy. And that's why I think the seraphim cover their eyes and cover their feet, right? Because He is so gloriously holy that they cannot, cannot see Him. They cover their feet because, you know, it's like modesty. You know, it's like you, like you don't want to show your feet in front of uh, important people, right? You know, it's not like you wear your flip-flops when you go to the Istana, right? I mean, you wear your shoes. So in the same way, the seraphim are reflecting the holiness of God in their behavior. Because the essence of God is of holiness. So you think about uh, what is the essence of, say, Singaporeans? What is the essence of Singaporeans? Okay, maybe they love food, or maybe they are kiasu, right? Or, you know, what is the essence of uh, Americans, say? Maybe their essence is freedom, right? Or, what's the essence of being French? I don't know. Maybe being fashionable. Something like that, lah. Okay? But the essence of God is of, of fundamentally being holy. And that's why it's so important for us to get the right picture of our God. He's almighty. The whole world is full of His presence. His character is fundamentally, supremely holy. Now, this is very different from the way the world perceives God. Right? So, you know, in the world that we live in, we think of God usually as an old man. Right? He's this grandfatherly figure. He's very kind, you know, he, but he's a bit forgetful. He's a bit benign, uh, you know, a bit lost in the world. And, and, and we kind of like mock God in a sense. Right? I mean, we don't have that fear and, and hallowing and awe of God. But, but that's what God is really like, right, in this picture. This is like bringing us back to the reality of God. Oh, you got some more pictures, but it's okay. 
So, uh, when people meet God, as we will see in uh, Isaiah chapter 2, which we actually didn't see before, but if you did the Bible study, you'll notice. Right, the next slide. The one Isaiah chapter 6. You actually see that when you actually come across, come before the reality of God, not the cartoon figure of God, your reaction is one of fleeing from this powerful God, this holy God. There's one way you throw away your idols because you see how meaningless your idols of wood, gold, or silver, or metals really are. Because this is what the reality of God makes you realize, how small and insignificant you are, and how worthless your idols really are. So now, Isaiah, the prophet, stands before this almighty holy God. And what does he say in verse 5? Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, your sin atoned for. Now here we, we see that Isaiah comes before God, and the first thing he does is he realizes his sin. He confesses his sin. Now, he doesn't do it because, you know, Johnson was leading the service and said, okay, we're going to have a time of confession here, right? Or we're doing our baptism or membership or confirmation class. He does it because when you come and meet the holy, overwhelmingly almighty God, you realize... I'm a sinner. Because, you know, left to ourselves, there is no reference to what is really holy, right? We compare ourselves to other people. You know, like, we say things like, I'm not perfect, but at least I'm not as bad as, right? Or, I'm not perfect, but at least I haven't done this or that, right? Or, I'm not perfect, but at least I've done these things. But when Isaiah meets God, he realizes that based on the absolute holiness of God, I stand condemned. Woe is me. Disaster, despair, and doom. Now, you notice here, and I want you to look at the text a bit more closely, right? He says, I am a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips. Now, why does he say unclean lips? Now, according to God's law, there were many things which are unclean. Right? Many things who are unholy. You, you had some skin condition, that was unclean. Uh, a woman having a period, that was unclean. Uh, some animals, like pigs, they were unclean. Dead body, unclean. But that's not what Isaiah sees, right? The problem he sees is that his lips are unclean. Because he is fundamentally unclean in a deep way, like dead body you stay away from, right? Skin condition, try not to get sick, right? Uh, you know, animals, okay, don't eat. Fine, you can get rid of that uncleanness, but unclean lips, that's something that you're stuck with. And that's exactly what Jesus was saying in Mark chapter 7, right? 
Because Jesus says to the crowd, Listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a man can make him unclean by going into him. Rather, it is what that comes out of a man that makes him unclean. After he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. Are you so dull, he asked. Don't you see that nothing that enters a man from the outside can make him unclean? For it doesn't go into his heart, but into his stomach, and then out of his body. And saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. He went on, what comes out of a man is what makes him unclean. For from within, out of men's hearts, come, lewd, sorry, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evil come from inside and make a man unclean. So this is what Isaiah was talking about. Because he had unclean lips, he was unclean. Because the words, his expressions, all came out of an uncleanness in his heart. And that's why he sees that he has a real problem before God. And this is man's and woman's greatest problem before God. If God is almighty and holy, 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 and we are people of unclean lips, just like Isaiah and his people then, then how can the two meet? They cannot meet, right? Because the holy, holy, holy God cannot abide and meet with people who are unclean. There's only one outcome which Isaiah correctly sees, which is woe and doom and disaster. And that's why the first step that you need to make in order to come into a relationship with God is to recognize who God is and who I am. I need to know that God is a fundamentally holy God and I need to confess that I am unclean and unholy. But the problem is that uncleanness and unholiness is not part of the modern vocabulary. Right, you listen to the radio, you watch TV, you read a newspaper. I don't think I've remembered seeing the word unholy or unclean ever. I remember uh, one of the commentators said, for the modern reader, the concept of uncleanness is either unintelligible, that means they just can't understand what it's talking about, or it is irrelevant. It means it doesn't matter whether something is clean or unclean. So last week, there was someone who visited our church at the 4pm service, and they were from, uh, from the UK. So I was having a conversation with them. So they're telling me, I, I don't know, I haven't verified this, but they were telling me that there was a pastor in England who was giving an evangelistic talk. And uh, as he was giving the talk afterwards, a, a, a practicing homosexual man came up to him and asked him publicly if God would accept him. So this uh, evangelist in England said, well, according to God's word, you know, you need to repent, and you need to re- change your sexual practices and behavior. And apparently, the homosexual person reported him to the police, and the, the pastor was sent to jail. I don't know if this is true, but this is what he told me. Okay. But what is happening here? Okay, I don't want to talk about the injustice or the persecution, but what is happening here? What is the difference in the mindset of the world compared to what this pastor is saying? 
Fundamentally, it's because the world doesn't have a concept of things which are unclean. It doesn't have a, a concept or category of unholiness or uncleanness. It doesn't recognize that, that there are things in this world that God sees as unclean or unholy. And that's the problem here, isn't it? This is the first thing that we need to learn from Isaiah chapter 6, that God is a holy God and we are unclean. Fundamentally unclean, fundamentally unholy in the things that we do. And there are categories and concepts that God sees as unclean and unholy. So I remember a pastor said that in the modern world, Isaiah 6 would be rewritten like this, right? Uh, Next slide. He said, okay, if we were to write Isaiah 6 today, we would say, I resolve to think only positive thoughts and so come to believe in myself. I saw myself sitting on the throne high and lifted up, and I realized my own strength and power. I said to myself, I will stamp a mental picture of myself succeeding. And when God said, who will help me succeed? I said, here I am, use me. Right? And I think in a sense it's quite funny, but that is the reality of this world. right? We don't see our humility. We don't see our woe. We don't see our uncleanness. We see ourselves lifted high and glorious. And we don't understand that actually God Almighty cannot come into contact with us because of our uncleanness. So in verse 6 to 7, God then acts on behalf of Isaiah. Right? One of the seraphim, the, the heavenly burning ones, flew to Isaiah with a live coal in his hand, which he'd taken from tongs from the altar. And with it he touched Isaiah's lips and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your guilt, your sin, atoned for. Now you notice here that God is a fundamentally holy God, but He's fundamentally a God of generosity and grace. Isaiah doesn't do anything. He makes no vows. He doesn't make any sacrifices. He doesn't do some great work. But God in His grace provides the means by which the unclean Isaiah can become clean before God in order to serve him. He takes a burning coal, and many people say the burning coal comes from the sacrificial fire for where the sacrifices are burned, and he touches his lips. Now, the burning coal is not to destroy Isaiah, right? I I can't imagine a burning coal touching my lips. You know, it's just a metaphorical picture hopefully, right? But it's to show the atoning work that is necessary to cleanse and purify Isaiah. Now, I think the phrase, next slide, that we really need to focus on is that it says that your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Right? What it literally is saying is, the uncleanness of Isaiah has been paid for by something else and taken away. That's what atonement means, right? It's the idea of something paying for you so that your wrong is paid for. And here, we actually see that this is not just a model for Isaiah. No? It's not as if you come to church every Sunday and we give you these burning coals and you sort of press them upon your flesh to cleanse you of your sin, right? Because actually what happens here to Isaiah, the atonement that Isaiah receives, 
shows that God is looking forward to a greater atonement. And that greater atonement comes in the person of Jesus Christ. So 1 John chapter 4, it says, This is love. Not that we love God, but He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. You know, it's the same as what happened to Isaiah, right? God acts out of love for us, and He gives us, not a burning coal, but He gives us His very own Son at the cross as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And I think this is a very, very important lesson for us. tells us that the only way we as unclean people can approach a fundamentally holy God is through atonement. And that atonement only comes in the atonement that God provides, which is Jesus on the cross. Now, when I went to the internet many years ago to listen to sermons on Isaiah 6, I realized that actually if you can do the exercise for yourself, but please don't do it during the sermon because I realized that you all have handphones, right? You know, it's very interesting. One day I quoted a book uh, in the sermon. Then after the sermon, someone said, hey, you know, I downloaded that book that you mentioned during the sermon. I was looking at the introduction. So obviously that person was reading it, you know, as after I mentioned it, right? But, but you know, if you actually looked it up and you looked at Isaiah 6 sermons, you realize that a lot of pastors stop at verse 8, right? Because the rest of the chapter is actually something which is very disturbing. It's very disturbing for us. Because as we come to the rest of the chapter, we see that now that Isaiah has been cleansed, God has a use for him. So in verse 8 it says, Then, who, then I heard a voice from the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And I said, Here I am, send me. But look at what God says. He said, Go and tell this people. Be ever hearing, but never understanding. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people catless. Make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Now, verse uh, 9 here is not the content of what Isaiah preaches. He doesn't go around saying, Guys, be seeing but never understanding, be hearing but never perceiving. That's not the content, right? It is the result of what Isaiah preaches, right? Because if not, no, we wouldn't be reading another 60 chapters of uh, Isaiah, right? I mean, it's just a very short message to see but don't understand, right? But the, the, the result of Isaiah's preaching is that, is that he'll be preaching faithfully, preaching faithfully, but actually he'll be confirming people in their rebellion and their sin. If you look at the last section, right, the very last section where it says, in verse 10, the very last sentence, right, otherwise they will turn and be healed. It's almost as if the preaching of Isaiah hardens people to prevent them to turn back to be, to be healed by God just like Isaiah was. Now, how do we understand this? What do we make of this? Because it seems as if God is sending Isaiah not to save them, but to confirm his people in sin and judgment. To bring wrath on them. Now I think to understand Isaiah chapter 6 verse 9 always, we need to understand the context. right? That's why I spend a bit of time on the background. Because the question 
after chapter 1 to 5 was what? We are paying attention. The question was, what would be God's, react, God's people's reaction? What would be Judah's reaction to the preaching of Isaiah? Well, you know, remember, the, I always remember why. La. I always, I'll never forget it till I, till I go, you know, the bring it on, right? Isaiah was saying that, you know, God's people had this attitude where they were saying, bring it on. And what's actually happening here is, is that God is saying that when Isaiah preaches, the people are not going to change. They're not going to repent. This bring it on, willful, rebellious attitude to God hardens their heart. It deafens them. It blinds them to the preaching of Isaiah. So there's actually two responses that we see here. Right? I don't know. I'm not sure which slide out to. So basically, you got people like Isaiah. Obviously, it's different because he sees God directly, but, but he realizes his sin. He confesses his sin. He gets his sin atoned for. But then you've got other people who hear the message, the clear preaching of Isaiah. But instead of seeing their uncleanness, they are hardened. They are more stubborn. They are more willful in their rejection of God. And therefore, they have no atonement. Now, this shouldn't surprise us because, in a sense, this has happened through generation after generation after generation. In Mark chapter 4, uh, the next slide, right? it says, When Jesus was alone, the twelve and the others around him <clears throat> asked him about the parables. He told them, The secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you. But to those on the outside, everything is said in parables so that they may be ever seeing but never perceiving, ever hearing and never understanding. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. Again, in uh, Acts chapter 28, uh, this was Paul trying to reach out to people. So from morning and evening, he explained and declared to them the kingdom of God and tried to convince them about Jesus from the law of Moses and from the prophets. Some were convinced by what he said, but others would not believe. They disagreed among themselves and began to leave after Paul made his final statement. The Holy Spirit spoke the truth to your forefathers when he said through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will be ever hearing but never understanding. You will be ever seeing but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become callous. They hardly hear with their ears and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand their hearts and turn and I would heal them. Therefore, I want you to know that God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles and they will listen. See, it's just the same as when we read the responsive reading with King Herod, right? He, he spoke to uh, John the Baptist. He was an interesting guy to chat to. But he was hardened. He never really heard. He never really saw. And in the end, he allowed John the Baptist to be killed. Now, I think the application for us is the same because in every generation, we are just like the people in Isaiah's time. So, uh, the next slide. Uh, God was faithful to his word in the end and uh, the people didn't listen. And many, many years later, right? remember he began his ministry around 748 BC. By 597 BC, God's word was fulfilled. The people didn't listen. They were all destroyed. So for us, where will we stand before God today? Uh, is it the next slide? Yep. 
So now, instead of meeting with God, we, we meet with Jesus on the cross, right? So, will we be like Isaiah? Will we confess our sins, recognize our uncleanness, and receive atonement from Jesus? Or will we be like the people of Isaiah's time? Will we be hard in our hearts, blinded and deafened? Will we be hardened in our rebellion against God and, and therefore face God's wrath? So as we come to the end of this section, I think for me, fundamentally, it begins with a recognition of who God is. Who do you see God as? Do you see him as like this caricature of this doddering old man who has no power and is just trying to do some good when he can? Or do you see God sitting on his throne high and mighty? His glory fills the temple and fills the whole earth. His character is one of fundamental holiness of which he cannot tolerate any uncleanness. If this is the God that you know, then the only answer is to confess our sins and to hold on to his atonement in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, in conclusion, when I was much younger, I went to a club with my dad. So, you know, I was really busy. And uh, I was looking to call the waiter. So there was an old man there. Old man. Well dressed. He's wearing a white shirt. With a collar. Black pants with polished shoes. So I put up my hand to call him. You know, waiter, 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 right? Then my dad said to me, What are you doing? I said, I'm calling the waiter. He says, That's not the waiter. That's the president of the club. Right? So it's the same thing, right? It's like, you know, you, you see something and you mistake that person, right? You think, oh, this person is the waiter because, you know, oh, he's just well-dressed, whatever, old guy. But he's actually the, the most powerful person in the club. But in the same way, I think we can, we can mistake God, right? We think, oh, God, he's not really... We don't really see God as really that powerful, really that holy, really that almighty. But actually, in the last day when you see God you will be like Isaiah, right? Unless you have your sins atoned for, you'll be saying, woe is me, right? Doom is me, for I'm unclean. And when I come before this mighty, holy God, there is only wrath coming my way. We need to keep that picture of God in our mind, because if we have that picture of God, then we'll be a lot more mindful about holding on to Jesus, and we'll be a lot more mindful about the unclean and unholy things of this world that we have to avoid. So I hope that as we look at this passage, it's given us a a better picture or a reminder of who God really is and how we should live in the world before Him. Okay, So let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, we thank you for this wonderful testimony of when you met Isaiah and the truths that Isaiah now testifies to us. We pray for ourselves that you will help us to always remember that you are an almighty, powerful Lord. You are the King, the King of the world, and your glory stretches to the furthest ends of this earth. Dear Father, help us to see that your character is one of holy, holy, holy. And that as we stand before you as such a God, 
We can only be aware of how unclean we are. Like Isaiah, we are people of unclean lips and we live among a people of unclean lips. Help us therefore to accept your gracious love in sending us Jesus as our atoning sacrifice. Help us to see that you take cleanness and holiness and unclean things and unholy things very seriously so that we too may avoid them in our lives. And we pray for all these things in Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at busypc.sg.